scripture from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screens around us. Follow along with me as I read, starting at 13, where it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made you a judge or arbiter over you? Sorry, I sound a little ghetto there. Man, who made you a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, plentifully. And he taught to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. That's God. It has been a very long time since I was here with you. Uh, over a month, some of you may know that I was a part of the, the, uh, the group that went to Liberia with Pastor Ralph and Pastor Eric of the Brook Church. And after spending time in Liberia, I did not return with Pastor Ralph and Pastor Eric. Instead, I flew to Belgium, where my aunt lives, and I visited her until uh, Meredith and Ricky were able to join me, and we spent some time visiting family there and seeing other parts of Europe. Ugo joined us in London. But it is good to be home. Uh, quite honestly, I didn't feel that way until this morning. Up until this morning, I was still missing the croissants every morning, or two croissants every morning. But seeing you all and smiling with you and laughing with you, you replaced the longing that I have for delicious French pastries. Would you open up uh, in a word of prayer with me as we prepare to hear God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your provision over us. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you are with us here this morning, that your Holy Spirit is among us. Father, I ask that you would go before me, that you would lead me in my words. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. Lord, I know that my preaching is a ministry according to your work. I'm not the one who's doing the primary work, but you are, Father. And I pray that we would be able to see your son Jesus as a result of this word. Minister to us this morning, I pray. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're not there already, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus was in the middle of his teaching. There was a large crowd listening to Jesus' sermon. He was assuring his followers that they didn't have to be anxious or fearful before men. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus was talking about the nature of God, about hypocrisy, about having the words and courage to profess faith in Him. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What was so important about this inheritance that it drove this man to interrupt Jesus' teaching? It's such a strange interruption. It's as if this man had been standing in the crowd with a nervous energy that pushed him toward the front. I can almost see him counting with his fingers, making calculations until that moment when he finally blurts out his request, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We're not given a lot of details about this young man, but we know by the nature of his request that he must have been a younger brother. But more importantly, this man is concerned with getting his fair share. He wants justice. He wants to receive what is due to him. We can only imagine that he and his brother could not come to an agreement on what was a fair division of the inheritance. So he was here appealing to Jesus to help him get what he was owed. But it's a strange interruption. It's almost as if he had been there in the crowd with the rest of the people listening to Jesus, but he had not heard a single word Jesus had said. It's ironic, really. Jesus was teaching about worry and anxiety, teaching about the value God places on his people, but it's as if this man heard none of this. In his mind, he can only scan the inheritance, imagining a division fit to his liking. What's especially ironic about this interruption is that it isn't actually off-subject. It's misguided, yes, but this man's preoccupation with the stuff he feels he deserves is a perfect setup for Jesus' teaching. You see, this is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching about the kingdom. Here and whenever Jesus uses parables to teach, he's talking about the kingdom of God, about kingdom living. But you know what's interesting about kingdom living? As it turns out, kingdom living is antithetical to life as we now know it. Let me put it another way. Life according to Jesus is quite different than life according to us. That's why it sounds as though this man and his request are a part of a different conversation. It's as if he is speaking one language, the language of the here and now, the immediate, the right in front of you, and Jesus is speaking a language from a place that we have never been to. What's more, this man's preoccupation with the stuff he feels his brother owes him is an accurate representation of how you and I feel about life. Turns out, the man and his request aren't that strange at all. That's what makes parables and Jesus' teaching in the gospel so hard to understand. It's not the imagery or the veiled language that Jesus uses. It's the casting aside of our old way of thinking and accepting this new, better way of viewing and understanding the world. That's what's so striking about this encounter. What is an inheritance, really? Well, to this man, I'm sure, there was a great deal of security. 
We're not told how much the two brothers are fighting over, but the inheritance was probably worth a great deal of money. The actual amount is less important than what it actually represented. This inheritance, or at least the assurance that he would receive it, promised something to this man. It promised the man peace. Isn't that what many of us want? Peace? Freedom from anxiety? Isn't it our belief as well that if we can get enough money, enough things, eventually we will be free? Free from worry, free from anxiety, free to do what we've always wanted to do, free to be happy. That's the promise we convince ourselves of. The problem with money and things is not that we have them, it's that we find security in their abundance. We imagine ourselves safe in the arms of our things, so we do what that sort of belief naturally compels us to do. We strive for more. We hold what we already have tightly because ultimately we want the freedom and security we were promised. But the striving for abundance, it doesn't make us free. It makes us greedy. The man and his request must, might not actually be strange, but they are misguided. The request is a little off-putting in its self-motivation. It's as if this man expects Jesus to stop what he is saying, leave the crowds, leave his disciples, so that he can attend to this man's request and argument with his brother. That's the thing about our love affair with things. It inflates our own self-circumstance so that the only thing in view is me. But more importantly, the request that this man made is misguided because it misses the intent of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Jesus didn't come to decide inheritance claims. Look at verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus is saying to this man, you are in grave danger of missing not just the point of this sermon, Jesus says, but you're in danger of missing everything altogether. He looks to the whole crowd and warns them, saying, take care and be on your guard against all forms of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It was greed that ultimately drove the man in his request. He had placed his trust in possessions, looking to them for security and rest. But once you make that mistake, once you find that, that one isn't enough and you need two, and if you're lucky enough to get two, you actually need four. And as you keep gaining more things, you don't acquire more rest, you acquire more want. The unending chase for more, that's greed, Jesus says. It is a hunger that will not be satisfied. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Abundance, or more accurately, the pursuit of abundance, will never let you rest. It's an important idea. That life does not consist in the abundance of things. It is important because it contradicts our own way of thinking. It contradicts my way of thinking. 
In our minds, abundance equals security. It equals freedom. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from trouble. If we just get enough, enough money, enough things, enough friends, then I will have everything I need. Can you hear yourself saying that? I can. I hear myself saying that all the time. Abundance, we believe, protects us, it keeps us, it holds us until we fall asleep at night. But the problem with the pursuit of abundance is that we don't know when enough will be enough. How do you know when enough is enough? In a sermon on the nature of greed and money, a pastor, Scott Sauls, gives incredible insight to this unending pursuit. He points to a study conducted by Juliet Shore on America's relationship with money. And in her book, The Overspent American, her study makes this incredible observation. It concludes that only one-third of American households making $100,000 or more could agree with this statement. I can afford to buy everything that I really need. Only one-third of American families making over $100,000 can agree to that statement, I can really afford to buy what I really need. Scott Saws makes this surprising observation then. According to her study then, 66% of the wealthiest people in the wealthiest nation think they're just scraping by. It doesn't matter how much money you already have. When you place your trust in abundance, when you set your hope for peace and security in having enough money, you will never have enough. There has to be another way. There has to be a better way to deal with our need for security, our need for peace and rest. Jesus, as he often does in the Gospels, makes this truth clear through the use of a parable. I've been gone for this entire series, but I went back and listened to the four sermons that we've had in this series thus far. And you know better than I do that parables are powerful stories because they pull us into the action. One person defined parables this way. He said, a parable is a picture that becomes a mirror and then a window. As we gaze at the scene in the parable, we see ourselves, then we see truth. Look at verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. Jesus' parable has all the makings of a feel-good story. Whether in Jesus' day or in ours, this rich man is a model of success. The man was a farmer, a successful one at that. Now, I I don't know much about farming. I've only seen farms in television. But what I can gather is that farming is a lot of hard work. At least that's what the television tells me. On the plane home, I was watching this documentary of a chef. This is off, off script, but a chef who lived in Iceland and decided to leave the city to become a farmer. And as I was watching, I realized that's a lot of work. He got up early in the morning, 
he went to bed late at night. He made these nice meals, but I thought, is it really worth it? <laughs> it looks good, but it's a lot of work. And this man is a farmer, and he is a wealthy one at that. Could you imagine the kind of work it took to become a rich man farming? Even in an agricultural society, this was impressive. I mean, if you saw this man, if you lived during this time and you saw this man, you would look up to him. You would see him and his work ethic and you would say, that's the kind of man I want to become. Or that's the kind of work ethic I want to pursue. If I have children one day, I want them to be like this man. And he worked hard. He got up early in the morning, he went to bed late at night, and he made his wealth by the sweat of his brow and the work of his hands. This was a man. He was wealthy. He was successful. He would be a source of motivation for all of us. And his success led to a kind of problem we all wouldn't mind having. He had so much coming in, he didn't know where to put it. Could you imagine having that problem? You are so successful, you don't have enough space in your bank account to keep your money. That's the problem this man had. Now notice something else in verse 16. This man was already a rich man by the time we meet him. He, he was already a rich man. His barns were already full, but more is coming in. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. If his farm were a basketball team, he would be the Golden State Warriors. He already had Steph Curry and Draymond Green and, and, and who am I forgetting? And Clay Thompson. All of a sudden now he's getting Kevin Durant. This man can't stop winning. So what will he do with this plenty? What will he do with this abundance? What shall I do, he asks himself. I have nowhere to store my crops. My barns are already full. I will do this. I will tear down my old barns and build newer, larger barns. There I will store all my grain and all my goods. Verses 16 through 18 provide a glimpse of this man's work and success. Verse 19 provides a glimpse into his soul. In this verse, we hear this man giving expression to what this wealth means for him. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. I've made it to my final lap, he says. My goal is just ahead of me. Once I finish building my building project, I will have achieved all that I wanted to accomplish. All my work, all my late nights and early mornings have been for this moment. My happiness is just a stone's throw away. The rich man was just like you and I, perhaps a little bit further in his goal setting, but he's just like you and I. He had finally hit his number for financial freedom, and after all the work, he was actually going to be able to enjoy it. But one night... After the man had made his plans, everything changed. In a sermon, a good lesson from a bad example, Haddon Robinson imagines this night with dramatic imagination. When Jesus told the story, the events of that night would have come as a surprise to us. 
Dr. Robinson's vivid retelling helps us hear the story as Jesus intended. I want to retell this part of the story using Dr. Robinson's words. Dr. Robinson says this, You can imagine the rich man sitting at his desk one evening. And across his desk is the architect of the town. They have sprawled in front of them the blueprints. And the rich man says to the architect, Now listen, there was a time when I had the best farm in the whole community. Then I had the best farm in the entire Jordan Valley. I want to have a model farm that they'll know all about throughout all of Israel. Two men work and plan. And the rich man's wife comes in and she urges him to come to bed and, she, and he kisses her goodnight. But the two men go on and continue working until the clock strikes 11. And finally, the architect says, listen, I've been out almost every night this week. I've just got to get home. I'll take these plans. I'll work them over. So he rolls them up and goes to the door and the rich man sees him out. He bolts the door, but the adrenaline is flowing and he can't sleep. So he goes back to his desk and he takes out his pen and he continues his plan. He thinks about his expenditures. So much for the farm, so much for the barn, so much for the insurance, so much for the children's education, so much for the pension, so much for the church. As he's making these plans, he hears a knock at the door. Startled, he's about to open it and discovers to his astonishment that there's a presence already in the room. The rich man says, who are you? The presence says, I'm deaf. The rich man says, deaf? What do you want? Death says, I've come for you. The rich man says, no, no. There there must be some mistake. I mean, you did not tell me you were coming. There was no indication that you would be here. Death says, oh yes, I, I told you. I just don't think you were listening. I told you when I took that young man down the street a few months ago. I told you when I took your partner a year ago. I told you every time you opened a newspaper. Whether you stopped to read or not, I don't know. I, I told you every time you saw a cemetery. I told you, but whether you heard or not, ten, nine, eight. The rich man says, wait, wait, look, we we can make a bargain. You can have half of everything I've collected. You can have half of my barns, half of my money, half of my farms. You can have half of it all. Just let me live. Death chuckles. What do I have to do with that? Six, five, four. The rich man says, wait, wait, wait. You can have it all. You can have everything I've collected. It's yours. Just let me start over again. I'm just not ready for you. And death, with its grin, waves his hand and the rich man is counted out of existence prepared for all contingencies and ignored life's only inevitability, Robinson says. He prepared for life and the very thing for which he prepared was taken away. As I listen to that, I think, after all that work, after all the riches, after all the plans for more barns, 
he was gone. Right when he had the fruit of his labor, security, peace, and happiness at his lips, his life was taken away. What good were his riches now? What benefit did he truly gain from his abundance? We look at men like this, and even in death we esteem them as exemplary. But what is God's view of this successful rich man? One simple word. Fool. Despite our assessment, this man was a fool. Why? Because he spent his whole life chasing after something that he could never grasp. The promise was right there. He had made plans for it. He was going to rest, find comfort and happiness in the arms of his wealth. But what wealth promises to give is never what we actually receive. The man was rich in wealth, but poor in the only currency that actually matters. He was not rich toward God. The word word fool, then, is an especially appropriate word for this man. According to the Bible, fools live as if there is no God. The rich man lived with only a concern for physical things, his possessions, what he thought they could provide. And he lived long enough to find out that in the end, everyone dies. Whatever you accumulate, you cannot save it in the end. And what you acquire cannot go with you. So we might say, well, maybe he should have enjoyed his riches sooner. Maybe the error of the rich man is that he took too long to enjoy what he had worked for. That's the foolish behavior, right? You might be tempted to think that way. It's tempting to hear this parable and conclude that if it all goes away when we die, then maybe the answer is to eat freely now. Don't worry about saving for a day that you may never see. Just consume what you have in front of you. But that too is just as foolish. The tragedy of this man was not that he didn't live long enough to enjoy his riches. It is that he looked to his riches as a source of joy and comfort rather than to God. He had spent his whole life acquiring more things when when he should have been spending his life doing more to understand God. He had spent his whole life acquiring more things when he should have been spending his time getting more of God. This man would never be satisfied. If you think that your peace will be secured by how much money you make or how many things you can afford, you are a fool. You're investing your life in the wrong thing. You'll keep chasing the mechanical rabbit, but you'll never be able to catch it. What is it that we're actually chasing when we chase money and abundance? What's the lie that we believe? The problem isn't strictly money. Money is only a symptom of what festers in our hearts. It's greed. That idolatrous belief that more things will mean security. The more things, that more things will provide what only God can provide. Rest, peace, and satisfaction. That's why Paul warns us, 
in Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Greed, which is idolatry. The folly of the rich man is the belief that riches and things will give you security. Will give you freedom from anxiety, from worry, from trouble, from pain. But it can never do those things. This way is clear. It starts as an answer to our anxiety and worry. Get more and you will worry less. You will be secure in life as long as you have enough. But the trail doesn't lead to peace. It leads to greed. It leads to an empty stomach that cannot be satisfied. The more you feed its appetite, the more it wants to eat. If you've been chasing that lie, don't be a fool anymore. Laying up treasures for yourself isn't freedom, it's slavery. You might say, but if I just hold on a little longer, I'm almost at my goal. Fool, this day your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Stop making the bad investment. You'll never get the return you were promised. I told you at the start that Jesus' parables are about kingdom living. And what makes these parables so challenging is not that they are difficult to understand, it is that they run counter to the way we live our lives. But Jesus is not simply concerned with deconstructing our worldview. He wants to build us up and offer us a new way, a better way. The old way responds to anxiety and worry and our need for security and makes plans for acquiring more stuff. And the new way, the kingdom way, is also a response to our anxiety and our need for security. Look at verse 22, after Jesus tells this parable. He said to his disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food. And the body more than clothing. Jesus starts in the same place. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. But according to Jesus' way, the answer isn't to strive for more stuff. It's to look to God. Our gracious, loving Father who knows exactly what we need. If He gives food to the sparrows, Jesus says, who do not farm or do not build barns, do you not think he will provide for you? Look at the lilies, Jesus says. They don't work, they don't sew clothing, yet there has never been a king better dressed than the flowers of the earth. If our our good God cares for even the grass, trust in him to provide all that you will ever need. Don't get caught in the never-ending chase for more things. Don't pursue riches. Pursue the kingdom of God, Jesus says. When you are rich toward God, firmly rooted in a relationship with Him, you will begin to understand the better way that Christ offers. The pursuit of wealth promises security and freedom, but do you know what will truly free you from your worry? Do you know what will truly give you peace? Trusting in God and walking according to His kingdom way. 
something remarkable happens when you trust God. You are freed not just from worry and anxiety, but you become freed of your habit of hoarding what you have. When you seek the kingdom, you stop looking inward and you look out to those who are in need. There's a great freedom that takes place when we pursue the kingdom of God. We're no longer self-motivated, but we are motivated for the needs of others. There's a great freedom. We move from being slaves to our possessions to freely giving of our possessions. Because we believe that God is ultimately the one who provides. You want to be free from anxiety, free from worry, free, free to enjoy peace. Jesus says, pursue the kingdom of God. Because only then will you truly find peace and security. Only then will you be free to give out toward those who are in need. It's an incredible reversal that has taken place. We are no longer slaves to greed, but we are now lovers of God and lovers of people. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, with a treasure where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Church, let me leave you with at least two clear directions from this passage. First, anyone who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God is a fool. If you have spent your life striving for more things, buying into the lie and worshiping at the altar of greed, let me warn you, you are pursuing the path of folly, of foolishness. What you seek will not be found there. You will continue to work, continue to pursue things, and continue in your dissatisfaction. No amount of money, no amount of things, no amount of friends will ever satisfy your longing heart. You can pursue it as long as you want, but listen to me carefully. Do not be like the rich man who met death and had nothing to show for his life. You want to truly be rich, be rich toward God, not rich in treasures that do not last past this life. You cannot take them with you. The only true richness, the only true kind of abundance that we should be after is the abundance that has been freely given to us. That is the lavish love that God has poured out on us. Seek God's kingdom. Trust God when you are in need. Don't trust in the false promises of greed, but instead trust God that He will provide for all that you need. And in doing so, free yourself from your worry. Free yourself from your anxiety as we cling to the promises of God, not to the promises of things. That's the first lesson from this parable, from this story. Secondly, I want you to listen to what Jesus instructed His disciples. He said, not only to... To, to not be anxious, but to give freely because we trust God who is ultimately the giver of things. There's a great reversal that has taken place. As I said before, those of us who were hoarding our possessions 
can now freely give them out to everyone because we trust in God. If you were once a hoarder of things, if you once placed your trust in acquiring more and more and having security there, I want to challenge you with Jesus' words. Look for those who are in need. Brothers and sisters, I know that many of us have needs, but all of us can look to someone who is in need and give freely because we trust the God who is a giver of all good things and who is a loving Father and who will provide for all of our needs. Brothers and sisters, there are family members here who have needs. There are brothers and sisters who are going to college. Now, some of you know Oscar's family situation. You know that he has a great need. I urge you, I, I implore you, think about what it means to be a kingdom seeker. To pursue the kingdom is to freely give. There are young families, couples who need, need help too. Whether it's financial or with time or with, with love, we have so many resources as a church. I want us to be a kingdom-seeking church that freely gives of our resources. Not just money, but our time, our, our love, our friendship. And not just here for the people that are here, but those who are in this community. Could we be kingdom-seekers who are not ashamed to speak out the truth of what we testify to, what we have declared in our hearts that God has reigned in the person of Jesus, our Savior. Let us be free to testify to this truth. Let us be free to, to act out this truth by seeking out those who are in need and giving freely of all that we have, all that has been given to us. A great reversal has taken place. We are no longer walking according to the old way, but are now walking according to the new way the kingdom way, the Jesus way. And this is quite different than what many of us are used to. But when we understand the love that God has shown us, when we recognize that we were once slave to all sorts of sins, greed, idolatry, all sorts of passions of the flesh, but we have been freed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been called to be a family reconciled by the grace that God has provided for us. And in being reconciled, you and I are free to walk according to the Holy Spirit, to embody this kind of kingdom living that Jesus is calling us to. Look to those who are in need. Those who are preparing to go out into doing mission work to testify to God's kingdom. Pray for them. Give toward them. We have so many people who are doing that. Rebecca's leaving soon. Kayla, uh, who's not here this morning, is also going. There are so many others who are doing the kingdom work. Let us look out to those who are in need. Let us be kingdom seekers. Let us pursue the kingdom of God. For life does not consist in the abundance of things. And any person who is rich in possessions but not rich toward God is a fool. Let's pursue the kingdom. What really matters for eternity. And as a result, let's enjoy this freedom that we have to testify and to act out in ways that demonstrate God's goodness and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 